Welcome to Bottom Line's Top Dollars, a podcast about all the money things you suspect might be ruining your life. I'm Laura Vu, recording from Montreal, Canada, which is on the traditional territory of the Ginankahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And I'm Hadassah Damien, currently up in the Catskill Mountains, which is the Sopas tribe land. Together, we are the Ladies Who Crunch, two artists and researchers who have made careers for themselves in finance. Today's topic is reparations, specifically money and reparations. How might we pay for it? How do we measure it? And can we avoid class war in the process? We want to start with a community warning around our content. There will be passing mentions of specific kinds of experiences of violence and for people who've survived that violence. And we also want to acknowledge that by talking economically about these, that itself could be painful. With that information, let's dive in. Laura, with reparations, how are we going to frame it today? So we have a big kind of caveat at the top here, which is we are not lawyers. <laughs> we are finance and accounting nerds. And so we're not going to debate the fine points of law or ethics or decide whether specific reparations should occur. We're going to talk about reparations work from the perspective of money and economics. So if you are interested in the debate, there are so many great podcasts and articles about that issue, and we are going to link a bunch of them in the show notes. And we recommend that you check them out. And so even though we're talking from an economic perspective, we're probably going to bring up examples of reparations that have occurred in the past. And we're using them as illustrations to explain specific issues and challenges. But in all instances, even if the reparations have not yet occurred, we're just going to assume that legally they should occur. So let's start off with defining the thing. So Damien, what are reparations? So reparations are at their most basic, the idea of repair. How do you repair something that should not have happened to an individual or group of people systematically. And the Movement for Black Lives Reparation Toolkit pulls from the UN's uh, definition to say that reparations are a concept rooted in international law that informs specific forms of repair to specific individuals and groups of people or nations for specific harms they have experienced in violation of their human rights. So reparations are not vague concept like equal status. Reparations are more like restored opportunity after specific instances of harm. Reparations are not just throwing cash at a problem because that isn't necessarily addressing the systematic nature of the harm that was done. From this, we're going to go into why have reparations been implemented? Like in what context have they happened? And again, reframing with this idea of reparations are repair. Reparations historically have occurred when governments or institutions were forced to pay them. This usually happens through one of two processes. It either happens through a legal process, i.e. litigation. So this is what happened, for example, we had a huge settlement to the survivors of Indian residential schools here in Canada. The reason they did that was because it was a class action law lawsuit by survivors that had gotten to the point where it looked like it was likely to be successful. And so the government preempted that process by entering into an agreement with the survivors. So that's one way that it happens. So people force it through the legal system. And the other is a purely political process. And that can either be a diplomatic process. For example, at the end of a war, countries enter into a diplomatic treaty process to end the war. And that often includes reparations to be paid by the quote unquote 
quote-unquote losing side to the winning side, uh, like we saw after both World War I and II. Or it comes from political pressure, either inside a country or internationally, sort of like cultural pressure to push for certain reparations to occur. So now we know what reparations are. We know how people push for them to be enacted. Now we're ready to kind of dive into these accounting and finance issues around reparations. And we're going to start with valuation. Right. And so I think what's interesting to me is that, yes, what we've been talking about so far, what we're going to keep talking about for a while is operating at the level of the nation state or the economic system, right? So we're talking about operators who can make laws, make policies that get enacted at national or international levels, can create the kind of valuation or assessment of cost or value that might actually be able to address something at this this large of a level. And so how do you measure or size out what would repair harm experienced by individuals or groups um, in violation of their human rights? One way or that we're not going to look at um, as a meaningful method of valuation is the idea of property valuation in the sense that people have been considered property. First off, that's fucked up. Second off, it centers the problem in the first place, right? right? Like it reminds us that we in capitalism kind of only consider property or property loss or gain as the ultimate goal. When we dive into the idea of valuation, I think this is one of these moments where I like to put in a little footnote saying, as people who identify as anti-capitalist or people who are very critical of capitalism, the actual idea of valuation or that everything can have a price tag put on it is one of the things that I find most deplorable about capitalism and one of the things that I find most disgusting. I think that in talking about valuation and how we do this, you'll, it's one of the ways that sometimes feels the most violent, especially when, like you say, we start to accord value to people. Like seeing how this process of valuation gets applied applied to valuing pain and suffering can be very traumatizing. And so this is one of the challenges when you're trying to talk about reparations from any kind of framework that involves uh, restorative justice or actually thinking about true repair. It sometimes can be like this academic, feel very academic and very um, abstract. Yeah. Abstracted from human experience, right? Because one of the main ways that when we started looking into researching the economics of in particular reparations for people in the US who are experienced the impact of either being descendants of enslaved people or just in general as black people in the US, the impacts of systemic racism, which comes out of the enslavement of, of African Americans. One of the big ways that reparations is evaluated is in terms of lost wealth. And so again, center the idea that in capitalism, we should be working and making money. So that we need to critique. And the idea is look at how much your stolen labor was worth at the time, subtract costs of living and add interest over time. Because hypothetically, one might have worked, paid for your housing and food, and then use that money to gain some other type of wealth, however you might have done it. 
And so just a couple numbers to give us some context here. In 1860, on average, if you were working and being paid, you were making $150 a year. Harper's Magazine ran some numbers. They estimated that the total reparations due was $97 trillion based on 222,500,000 plus hours of forced labor between 1619 and 1865, compounding it at a 6% interest rate up into the 90s. And so this, it's a bit of a misleading number because it assumes that that money isn't connected to people who are using it to live. It's just the value of labor that was created and could have been used to as capital, you know, from over like a 350 year period. So a better way to evaluate it might be how economist Larry Neal of the University of Illinois did. He just looked at possible wages. So back to what might someone have been earning at that time between the years of 1620 to 1840, minus the cost of maintenance that we workers have to pay to live for medical, for food, for housing. His calculation was that descendants of enslaved people in America were owed 1.4 trillion for lost wages minus maintenance. He used an interest rate, uh, an earning rate of 5% to get to today saying that, well, actually 8.4 trillion is what's been lost and therefore owed today in lost wages. But it's not just wages that's lost. When we only use that, we're centering potentially the wrong things because of course there's so much opportunity lost when you don't have the choice of what you're doing with your life. So we're talking about businesses not started, land not purchased and owned in generations for years. Right now in the US, 97 to 98% of all farmland is owned by white Americans. We're talking about education not gained, therefore cultural work and cultural contributions not made, etc. and so on. So when we're thinking about lost wealth, there's lost income, but also lost contributions. Okay, well, if we're going to value reparations, specifically in context of enslaved people, we look at what you lost historically and then just push it into the future by adjusting for the time value of money. One of the big problems here is that it it kind of takes out that middle piece of what happened between the end of slavery to now. It removes all of the systemic harm that happened in the interim, which is connected to the original harm that slavery kind of stood on top of. The piece by Tanahisi Coates in The Atlantic talks not just about slavery, it actually starts with talking about other things like red lining and the exclusion of Black Americans from the GI Bill. If you only evaluate the labor from pre-1860 and then move it forward, you're also missing the fact that there were all these other, like you say, opportunities lost. How were you impeded from succeeding? Mm -hmm. The reparations that never occurred back in 1860, such as the 40 acres and a mule, what was the value of that that was lost? There's all these kind of layered ways where this form of calculating starts to fall apart. And you have to make all these assumptions about what could have or what didn't or what would have. Mm -hmm. Like, would all that wealth have been lost in the economic crash of the Great Depression? Would it have? Would it not have? So there's all these sort of pitfalls in that form of trying to evaluate it. Exactly. Because we know that opportunity is not the same thing as outcomes, right? That's at least in the US, like, and probably in Canada too, that's one of the big myths. Oh, an opportunity is equivalent to an outcome. No, it's not. Right. So one of the ways that we also saw reparations being evaluated was just to look at outcomes and to ask the question, well, how much is required to correct the disparities in outcomes that we see today? And so one of the biggest indicators there is wealth disparity between Black families 
um, and white families in particular in the U.S., right? So instead of saying we're going to go back and deal with wages because that might not actually be addressing the problem, the problem right now is outcome differentials and experience and impact differentials, right? So we're saying like, all right, let's just assume that the racial wealth gap is a direct result of the impacts of enslavement of everything, the totality of everything, right? But even more so, yeah, to your point, Laura, to the impacts of all of the policy, social sort of norms that then happened for 100 years after slavery in the US, right? So what we end up with is what we call the racial wealth gap, which is on average, Black folks in the US have 10 cents to every dollar of net wealth, that's money in the bank, that white Americans have. And of course, we know averages are, are very slippery because also when we look at, you know, Americans on a whole, in general, about 40% of everybody has nothing in the bank. So we know averages. Um, they take the billionaires in that average and your poorest people. Exactly, exactly, right. But that doesn't mean that when we don't break our data out by race, we see some very very disturbing information in there. So a valuation of reparation is to say, well, somewhere between 12 to $14 trillion would correct that racial wealth gap. And then again, when you average that out, that looks like about $300,000 for each of the 40 million descendants of people who were enslaved in the US. The biggest advocate for this, the most well-known is William Darity Jr., who's a professor at Duke University. And the way he came up with that 12 to 14 trillion is saying the, the descendants of enslaved people is 13% of the population. So they should have 13% of the wealth in the United States. But right now, they only have 3% of the wealth. And so in order to correct that gap, that 10% needs to be reallocated to those people. Another way that reparations is sometimes calculated that we don't see um, applied, you know, in terms of folks in the U.S. who, who are uh, descendants of enslaved people or just experiencing impacts is this idea of pain and suffering, in part because it's incredibly difficult to measure and potentially also re-traumatizing to attempt to measure it. Laura, you had some insights about how that measurement happened with the Canadian government attempting to do reparations for residential schools. For any listeners who don't know what residential schools were, for well over 100 years, this process only stopped in Canada in the 90s, the 1990s. Indigenous children were systemically taken away from their families and put into residential schools. And schools were specifically designed to transform Indigenous children into westernized white children, i.e. remove their culture, teach them English, make them Christian. Christian. The schools were run by churches, Catholic and Protestant churches, and the children suffered immense abuse. Thousands of children went missing, in essence, murdered. Survivors took the government to court. There was a settlement. And then the government agreed to a process of reparations. Part of it involved direct payments. Part of it was a truth and reconciliation process and a commemorative process. But there was another process for students who had specifically suffered abuses. The method in which the government had to decide how much those survivors of abuse received, they distilled it into a very mechanical grid of pain and certain actions were assigned points and those points then calculated how much money people would receive. So the grid was kind of broken down into what type of abuse did you endure? How frequent was that abuse? What was the duration of the abuse? Like how long in your life did it occur? 
what was the magnitude or the severity of the abuse? And then also, were there permanent damages created by the abuse? And this determined how large of a settlement you would get. And this has been the process that was the most difficult and the longest. It still isn't finished. There are people who are still going through this process. This is one piece of that process that was most heavily critiqued as being instances where people were re-traumatized. Suffering was literally broken down into almost like unit economics, pieces that had individual value, and you could put them together like Legos to figure out how much you were to be given. And so this, people, a lot of the critiques of this was that this was just a new form of governmental violence because all of these survivors had to tell all the details of everything they suffered in order for it to be fit into this grid and then result in a payment. It, and, and this goes back to this, what is reparations? What is reparative? What addresses and corrects the harm embedded in that question is what keeps that harm from perpetuating or re-traumatizing individuals who have it, right? So there's one other way in which reparations are calculated, at least at the international scale, and that is how much can the payer uh, afford? And we saw this after World War I and after World War II. In World War I, Germany ended up being asked to pay an amount that it turns out it couldn't afford. The world learned a lot from that. We'll talk about that in the next section uh, after World War II. Germany's reparations were scaled differently based on what the international community believed that they could afford. So in terms of correcting the harm, there was also this um, question of implementation. And the idea of not making more harm because they, the reparation from World War I caused their economy to collapse and was one of the things that contributed to World War II. If you calculate an amount that literally would collapse an entire country, well, you probably shouldn't do that. Because it's unimplementable. So let's let's actually talk about, first I want to talk about, well, what are asks for reparations in terms of what do people who want reparations want implemented? And then how do nation states actually attempt to implement these? And so there's, again, there's sort of two asks. Let's just specify them. One is systemic impact. Right. So that is find, fix the problem and ensure that that problem is done. And so in the U.S., you know, in terms of what are the asks for uh, reparations around experiences and impacts of enslavement, it's what we call a mixed model. And and we see that from a couple different people, from movement to black lives, to the American descendants of slaves, to some researchers. So this looks like people asking for representation in politics, education to be available, free policy in terms of being able to build wealth um, in terms of homes and other things, healthcare being accessible and or free, um, investment into communities and cash payments, finding and fixing the problem. We, you've heard us talk about and what often happens is some combination of an apology and cash restitution. So again, that's what we've seen that Laura, you were talking about in terms of residential schools. It's what we saw at the institutional level. That's often what you see. So like, again, after World War II, like Nippon, Mitsubishi uh, had forced uh, Chinese forced workers in Japan doing their work. They were paid out 
cash and there was apologies. Same thing with people who were Japanese who were interred in the US, cash and an apology. But let's talk about cash. Why is it what's often seen as a reparative mode? Cash is the easiest form of compensation. Money is the way in which trade is facilitated. It is the easiest way to take from one and give to the other. Also, Western legal systems use money compensation as the primary form of restitution. The only real form that they seem to have, the only way that they understand to, you know, repair something is cash payment. Right. We're taught that cash is our ultimate objective at any point in life. Therefore, cash is the objective of of a reparative model. And that's an easy critique to make as anti-capitalist. But one of the big asks of people is that it needs to be at least in part cash, even if it's just for symbolic reasons. There needs to be an acknowledgement on an individual level that each individual carries that hurt and has hurt to be repaired. Cash has that power to be given to each individual personally. And it also restores individual decision making at a level you get to decide how your cash is spent. Programs of reparations that say, oh, well, we're only going to give the money to communities in general, or the reparations will be in a non-cash format through social programs or other. A lot of people in the reparations movement feel like that is really paternalistic and kind of just goes back to not giving people freedom. If this is a reparations movement about freedom and people who historically had their freedom taken away, if the reparations are in a form that does not allow people the freedom to decide for themselves what is required to repair harm, then that is just a form that reenacts that same hurt and pain. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the other non-monetary methods that are proposed or implemented? So there's a lot of great ideas. One is land or property. So giving land titles to families to enable them to build wealth and equity. A lot of people who advocate this talk about how land was promised to people historically that was then never delivered. Another is education. So creating scholarship funds or funding for schools within affected communities or changing school curriculums to include education about the wrongdoing. So that kind of change to education is not just about people uh, getting access to education as one major form of changing the kinds of opportunities that people have for building wealth, but also saying that what we're taught about should change. And uh, another piece of that is saying that there should be more representation of uh, people in those academic institutions. So saying universities should have specific hiring programs to bring the number of Black faculty up to a certain amount by a certain date. The same thing for representation in uh, government at every level. Another is uh, systemic changes that uplift the affected communities. So this includes healthcare and employment programs. Looking at the harm, the results of the harm from a holistic kind of perspective, uh, delivering programs that address that. So housing, employment, employment, healthcare, education. Finally, the, the kind of last piece is about a repairing on a, a spiritual, cultural level. And this part is about apology, acknowledgement, and commemoration, which means putting money towards archival historical projects that uncover the extent of what occurred and making sure that it is known and that uh, public understanding increases and that hopefully that contributes to a change in overall culture. Right, right. And so again, like going back to this idea, this is not some like 
unheard of level of ass. What you really just talked about to me, I'm like, that sounds like what the reparations project globally looked like after World War II for the experiences of genocide that Jewish people experienced worldwide, right? Like we are not talking about something that has never been implemented before or can't be conceived of. We These are all ideas that are drawn from things that have come before. And I say this because like we're about to go into like, well, what are the issues with reparations and that often we hear issues about how impossible it is to implement. But I would like to say again, we globally as a humanity have implemented such things in the past. Yeah, it's about will. The argument that I hate the most is, oh, that's not practical. It's too big for us to do it. When Elon Musk is like, I want to send rich people to the moon. It's like, <laughs> No one's like, get out of here, billionaire. You can't do that. Yeah, Yeah. they're like putting Elon on magazines being like, this guy is brilliant. I'm I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'm like, we really think that rich people taking fucking vacations on the moon is attainable, but that reparations should be tabled because it's just too hard to figure it out. It's really very interesting, like what gets prioritized in the public imagination. So let's let's talk about some of the economic issues. Like we we promised at the beginning of this episode because here's what I have been thinking about since you and I have been putting this issue together is is this question around is talking about reparations and acknowledging both the long-term historical impact and the current impact actually forcing a conversation about experiences in capitalism overall. Right. Because I feel like some of the issues that people have, some of the comebacks are like, well, it's not like you can give everyone X amount of dollars and call it fair. Why do people think that? Because opportunity is not the same thing as outcomes in the U.S. or really anywhere in um, in the Western world. What we have is a whole bunch of people who had different levels of opportunity and also had different levels of outcomes. And so I think there's there's a lot in there for us to, you know, to actually poke at when we start to ask the question about reparations, because to me, there's also this question of like, well, we're, we're all, we're talking, we're, we don't want to, I don't want to equivocate reparations and economic experiences, but they're also not unconnected because if it was true that the only thing getting in black people's way in the U S was systemic racism, then what you would, and you were comparing that to everybody else in the U S you would see everybody else being middle-class and having all the money and black people in the U S having literally nothing, but what you see is ranges, right? So what we have here is the compounding issues. And we want to understand that we need to separate these, right? If we are taking a model of like, you're coming into the emergency room and you are bleeding out. Yeah. You got to put a tourniquet on that before you work on the person who is like having some lesser issue. Both people are still having issues. They're both still need to go to the hospital, right? We are looking at economic inequality for everybody in the US and extra (laughs) racial wealth gap economic inequality for Black people in the US because of all of these uh, compounded impacts around not being able to implement the GI Bill and get housing about redlining. It, It forces, I think, especially a divide between 
academic and activist communities and quote regular people when we're trying to talk about how to implement it because I don't think it's it's possible to implement without having the conversation about how capitalism is inequitable for everyone and hey other people who are also having inequitable experiences we're coming back for you but this other thing is really bad and we're prioritizing it because that's what repair is you know and I think like you were talking about the show like The Watchmen where like there was a reparations process in the city of Tulsa. There was a race riot in Tulsa in the 1920s. The show tries to imagine what would happen if reparations were paid out to descendants of those families and how white people would act, which is not great about it. Because again, (laughs) because there's this underlying issue of capitalism is inequitable, period. And reparations makes us have to acknowledge it's inequitable and that there's additional inequity. Part of why this is an interesting topic for us to look at as anti-capitalist is to say, okay, with the tools that capitalism gives us, how would we do this? And then actually every single one of them is problematic. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And then people talk about these potential externalities. You enter into this imaginative process like the Watchmen did, where it creates, in essence, armed conflict. So when we think about the money and specifically how do we deliver the cash to the people, you start to get people who are arguing for taking a step back and instead of just delivering cash directly to only descendants of of enslaved people to instead say, well, the program should actually just try to get rid of wealth inequality for every single person. So back it up. If you were to deliver cash individually directly to people, either in a lump sum or ongoing payments, one, how do you identify who are the people who should get these payments, especially when the time when slavery ended to the time when reparations are being enacted, there is such a huge gap of time and the record keeping historically was so poor. How do you identify who are actually descendants? Second, even if you were to do that, that's saying that all of these reparations should really only be for the act of slavery itself. And it completely ignores that redlining, uh, the Jim Crow era, the exclusions in the GI Bill, those affected all Black people, not just descendants of enslaved people. So then when you start to have this actual thing where you're like, who do I make the checkout to? It creates huge problems. Right. Because, yeah, how could you say that like the the systemic racism experienced by someone who could somehow prove they were directly descended from enslaved people is different than the systemic racism experienced by somebody who is Black who could not somehow prove that. Like, it's not different necessarily uh, policies that that these folks are experiencing or living under. Again, if we go back to the idea of repairing, not really a reparative process to have to go through an act of proving yourself. Anyone who has ever had to go through a name change or any other kind of process where you need to open up your freaking panty drawer to the government, everyone knows that that is just a super traumatizing experience. And so that is one big problem with cash payments directly to individuals is who do they go to. So then people say, well, here's an option. Instead of it giving to individuals, take a step back and give it to communities. Say, we're not going to parse between whether this individual person is a descendant of enslaved people and this person isn't. We're just going to give it to a community.
community overall, perhaps in the form of trusts or grants or land. And then the community, quote unquote, could decide what social programs to implement. There's that option. But then again, people have critiques of that by saying, how do you identify who the community is? Who are you actually giving the money to? And then who's getting to decide what programs get to be enacted? Right. And then going back to our definition of reparations, it's specific, it's it's identifying specific instances of specific harm for specific individuals or groups. So is that specific enough? There is this notion that several people talk about, which is baby bonds. Now, baby bonds, very briefly, is the, is the idea that we would deliver reparations in the form of giving every new baby a small trust fund. The person who's most talked about in relation to baby bonds is Naomi Zodi. Her idea for these is that they should not be given only to children who are the descendants of enslaved people and not only to Black children, but to every single baby that is born in the United States. And that these trust funds would be scaled to the overall wealth of the family. So the wealthiest families in the United States, babies born to those families would get trust funds of $500. And the poorest families in America, the children born to those families would get trust funds of $50,000. Those trust funds would then gain in value and become available when the children come of age. And her goal there is reducing the overall wealth gap, not just the racial wealth gap, but the wealth gap in general in the United States to make a more egalitarian society. And what she saw is that over the course of a generation or two, it reduced the average wealth gap from a magnitude of 16 times, you know, the the gap between poorest and richest being 16 times to a wealth gap of 1.4. Wow. The cost of this would be approximately $80 billion a year. Which as compared to 12 to 14 trillion, let's just remind ourselves, so much more affordable much more affordable. And the outcome is this reduction of the overall wealth gap. One of the arguments for this project is that it reduces the risk of creating more inequality and resulting in a class or race war. When you think about this $80 billion a year, if you do that program of baby bonds for one generation, 20 years, the overall cost is $1.6 trillion. If you do it for two generations, 40 years, it's $3.2 trillion. For 80 years, which now we're talking about, what is that, uh, four generations almost, maybe depending, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, it's 6.4 trillion. And so it's a much cheaper program than saying we need to put $14 trillion of reparations into the economy right now as direct cash payments. But the problem is, is this really now reparations at all? Right. Or is it is it solving a different problem, which is wealth inequality under capitalism for all people? It eliminates the the racial wealth gap, but it also eliminates the total wealth gap. So it's like not only do descendants of enslaved people get the outcome, but anybody on the bottom side of wealth inequality benefits. It is repairing plus, plus, plus. But does that mean that now it's no longer really reparations at all? It fixes a different problem and touches some of the problems, some of the asks in reparations for en- enslavement. Just because something fixes problems doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's reparations, right? And I think this brings up this other question we've been talking about, which is cash payments in general. If they're not addressing the systemic nature of the problem and ensuring that that problem won't perpetuate, we could have a scenario in which there are baby bonds. And there's still less good schools in neighborhoods of color or hiring 
pipelines and practices that end up with organizations that don't have like diverse sets of employees. We could still end up with 13% of the US being black, but only two members of, of <laughs> the Senate, you know, or one member of the Senate now, like, like lack of political representation. So this is where I think reparations, it goes back to like the money matters and the other things matter. Yeah, there's always a piece. It is never only cash, but it never excludes cash. There needs to be a shift of economic wealth. There needs to be cash payments of some kind. But cash alone doesn't actually, it doesn't get there. In New Zealand, there's reparations processes between the settler government and the Maori. Those settlements always contain three pieces, money, land, and an apology. There's a big argument that says if you give individual cash payments to people who are from communities that are very underprivileged, then those people will spend that money very, very quickly. And they will usually spend it on things where that money immediately leaves their community. That money will immediately go to landlords. It'll immediately go to medical bills without some kind of systemic infrastructure repair, some kind of building of capacity within those communities, creating Black-owned banks, creating better housing opportunities. If you don't have those things, the cash payments, they don't end up working. If the purpose of that money is to restore community and that money is spent and goes back out of communities in corporate capitalism, then the money hasn't actually repaired. Yeah, you've just pumped money into something that then was a sieve. Because of the systematic problems that are already happening. <laughs> so if the reparations don't address the sieve, then they're not actually going to change anything. Absolutely. And this, I think, gets to the thing that people bring up all the time when we're talking about cash payments for reparations, which is inflation. There's a big question of like, how do we fund these cash payments, whatever they're going to be, however they're going to be formulated. Under modern monetary theory, a, a government just invents the money. Yeah, there's big critiques of that. And yeah, and inflation is one of the major ones. And so inflation is is something we do want to avoid because it means that you have a loss of value in the money that you have leading to a loss of buying power. Inflation's already always happening because reasons we won't go into today. But the idea is that you dump a bunch of extra money into a system because you invent $12 trillion. What happens is the value of a dollar becomes worth less because there's more of them. And it becomes it very fast. It's not just inflation, it's hyperinflation. Right. And so we saw this in, Ven in Germany after World War II, Venezuela, like in the last 10 years. And inflation, especially if you get hyperinflation spinning out of control, pretty much always leads to like a disaster in your government, in your entire country collapsing. So you, you really don't want inflation and you really don't want hyperinflation. Think of it like this. In 1922, a loaf of bread in Germany cost 200 marks. And in 1923, it cost 200 billion marks. That's hyperinflation. In one year, it, the money became so worthless. If the government prints $10 trillion and dumps it into circulation, all of a sudden there's so much money in the economy, but there isn't more stuff to buy. So there's all this money and people want to spend all this money, but there's still just the same amount of stuff to buy. So now people are bidding up the prices of stuff. If you don't do something to avoid hyperinflation, it's going to collapse your economy. There's lots of ways to avoid it, though. There's been a couple instances in our lifetime where the government has had to, quote unquote, print lots of money and dump it into the economy, namely in 2008. And most recently during the pandemic, they've dumped tons of money into the economy and we haven't seen hyperinflation. It means that the government has ways of putting money into the economy that avoids 
these problems. One is, how do they put it into the economy? Sending direct payments and dumping a lot of money into the economy very fast is more risky. So one way to try and avoid it is to slow down the payments and make them ongoing. The other way to do it is by looking at mixed models, where the reparations that might have an overall value of $14 trillion doesn't involve putting $14 trillion of cash into the into the market, but doing a mixed model where some of it is non-monetary. So spending on infrastructure, spending on education, spending on health care, and the other portion is some form of direct cash payment. Right. Yeah, the value is abstracted, which just goes back to this funny thing where like, we are told money's our objective, but we use money to get things. So if I don't need money to get an education or to get my healthcare or to have a down payment together because there's some other way that value is being delivered to me, you can create an economics around that uh, without having to make more money. Again, where does that money come from? The government could print it. Also, you could come up with it through taxes. So, you know, back when we talked about billionaires, this idea of like taxing wealth, and this is one of Elizabeth Warren's ideas I really liked, is that taxing wealth that's not being used. And so, yeah, if you have money in a company, if you have money that you're actively doing something with, thank you very much for creating jobs and actively using that money. If you are just sitting on hoarded wealth, up to $50 million taxed at a certain amount, 50 million over a billion taxed at a certain amount, you have that much money you have extracted value from the country that you live in in the form of infrastructure resources. Those were created and have value in part because of the legacy of enslaved people building up a building up infrastructure, building up the value of a country. So you're in a relatively abstract way paying back into it. Or you could go from the nation state level down to the institution level, right? And tax organizations that have specific links to the harm cause. Churches, universities, corporations, insurance companies, companies that you can, and institutions that have a direct line to money made off of the particular act that you are attempting to repair. Yeah, so basically tax the profiteers. We've been talking about federal nation state approaches this whole time, but there's all these non-nation state reparations approaches. So for example, Georgetown University in in DC sold three people as slaves, made money off of that. And their act of reparations was to set up a scholarship fund and they redistribute $400,000 a year. Anyone who is a descendant of any of those people who were sold at Georgetown can go to Georgetown for free, pull on the scholarship fund, right? And they issued an apology, money, apology, making it right. One of the downfalls of reparations is how long it's taking to push the nation state to get there. And in the meantime, people continue to suffer. People continue to live with the results of that harm. And so going after churches corporations, you know, the the corporations that insured the slave trade, the the universities that participated in the slave trade. These are things that people can do on a shorter timeline to really start moving the needle. You know, there's that one politician who every at the beginning of every year uh, in the United States, he puts forward the bill for the investigation into reparations. He puts, he's puts he been putting it forward every single year for 30 years. Congress has never put it forward. This guy's been pushing for this 
on an on a nation state level for 30 years people uh, on a grassroots level are starting to say well what about the now folks sort of think you know we that they might never see reparations on a on a federal level but mutual aid efforts typified by like direct giving can be something that can happen in the now you see gofundme campaigns fa- reparations groups on facebook for indigenous folks or for black folks settler f- or n- non black or non indigenous people can join the these groups and then people will post their direct payment information like send a Venmo or PayPal or an e-transfer directly to people and you'll see people having one-to-one relationships where they'll say you know I am a, a settler I am a white person I will send cash payments directly to indigenous folks in my community directly to black folks in my community and then you also get small activist level organizations like Surge standing up for racial justice who do money moving events where they'll have a couple thousand people online where they will raise over $100,000 in direct contributions that then they circulate to activist groups working for racial justice. And so it's like in the good news, these move money immediately and address immediate needs. The bad news is this is not the same thing as reparations. And so again, I want to go back to the Movement for Black Lives Reparations Toolkit. This is useful and delivers aid and can seriously help people. And it's not the same thing as systematic change, because what you end up with is, you know, a couple levels of things. Number one, potentially people having to perform need in order to get their needs met, which could be anywhere from deeply uncomfortable to re-traumatizing. Also just emotional labor you have to fucking do to try to live. And it is not like a stable sense of change. It, it, it maintains precarity. The support surges when there is a protest. These reparations group will see like a big surge in membership and lots of money will move. And then attention sort of wanes, the, the money dries up and people who maybe are depending on it for rent or medical bills or tuition are left in the lurch. And so I think this thing about it not being something that actually repairs Yet it is called reparation. You see a lot of these groups for interpersonal reparations, and they're using the word reparations. And I believe they're using the word reparations as a way to say there is this harm that was done over the course of many generations has resulted in long term systemic problems where there are certain people who benefit and certain people who are oppressed. If you are somebody who's trying to work on that big systemic level, you you recognize that that's true. And in the meantime, I need rent. They're this interesting thing that communities are doing to try to hold on. But you're right. They're not having that big systemic change. They're not having that big apology. There isn't that moment of reconciliation. I read this amazing thing about indigenous reconciliation, and they called it face cracking. There needs to be a moment in the reparations process where faces crack. And you and I were looking at each other and we're trying to get to a moment where the the masks that we have come to wear through this harmful process, all this terrible time, crack. And that moment of vulnerability occurs where you get to a deeper level of actual repair and reconciliation. And that is one reason why reparations need to always contain something more than just the money. There's two big questions that, that stand out. One is, can there be reparations under capitalism authentically? And the other question is what you were getting at with the baby bonds. Should the like additional and and sort of parallel issues of the overall wealth gap also get fixed 
while we're working on reparations. So not covering one, not replacing one with the other, but like, you know, how can we talk about fixing the wealth gap? And, you know, should we be doing this while we're at it? Should we be doing it secondarily? Should we be? Can we only repair the racial wealth gap? And if we do that, if we focus and only repair the racial wealth gap, will we actually just exacerbate the problem of systemic racism in the United States through that. Whereas if you widen the scope and repair the the wealth gap in total, do you circumvent that problem and create enough space for people to actually start to come to the table and engage in that face-cracking process? Right, yeah. If we break off the wealth gap as a problem to solve and also engage in reparative work. I feel like we just had this huge episode where we're like, hey, guys, here is this epic drop course in this really intense thing. Every single subtopic could have been an episode by itself. And then at the end, we're like, here's a couple questions. And now we're going to peace out. So tell us what you thought and tell us where you want us to dig down because we're already starting to build season two. So let us know. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bottom Lines Top Dollars. We've been your hosts, the ladies who crunch. That's me, Laura Boo. And me, Hadassah Damian from Ride Free Fearless Money. You can find this show and show notes on the web at ladieswhocrunch.club. And you can find us all over social media. Just search for Bottom Lines, Top Dollars, or Ladies Who Crunch. I want to give a special thanks to our researchers, Ariel Federo and Handy Levine, and to the wild shit show that is late stage capitalism itself. Because remember, if anything you learned or heard in this podcast made you angry, good. If you're mad about it, we still have hope.